up our Bibles. Let's open up our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 26. If you do not have a Bible, please pick one up over there by Jeff Williams, who's standing there, handsome young man, and uh, follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, you are welcome to take this with you. Uh, I don't think there's very few things we could give you that's more valuable and important in life than God's Word. And we're going to be working our way through the whole chapter. So we're at 1 Samuel chapter 26. And we'll read the chapter as we go, okay? Let's open in prayer, though. Let's, let's pray and ask for God's blessing on this time. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your revelation to us. We uh, thank you for your written word. We pray, God, that you would give us divine light as we open up the pages of Scripture, that you would speak uh, through your word to us, that you will... Uh, really give us attentive ears and hearts and minds to uh, understand what you desire for us to, uh, to glean from this passage and ultimately to apply to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever learned from a past mistake? Have you grown and matured through adversity, through even your own failures? It humbles me to share this, but when I was 16, I failed my driver's test the first time. Any, any fellow failers? There's a few out there willing to, to boldly raise your hand. So I did not fail on the maneuverability. I did amazing on the maneuverability. I even remember the guy said, you did that really well. I'm like, well, thank you. So then I did the driving part. And I actually did the driving part really well. I was within about two minutes from my driver's license. So I pull up to this four-way stop. I stop, I look, make sure I'm the only one at the stop sign right now that can go. And I make, it's not a rolling stop, it was a good stop. And then I go, and then I failed. Why did I fail? It was not a four-way stop. It was a two-way stop. It was a two-way stop, there was a car coming. Luckily, the gentleman who was driving that was paying attention to me and he slowed up and stopped and like waving at me. And then I'm looking like, oh no, that was not good. And then I turned to the driving instructor and he's like, you just failed. And I'm like, all right. He's like, you can just head right back. We don't even need to do anything else. We're done. You're done. And a week later, I was able to get my driver's test. But we're talking 30 years almost since that glorious failure in my life. And every time I pull up to a two-way or four-way stop, I stop, I look, I double, I triple check, I make sure I'm looking at cars coming. I am so paranoid that it has changed my driving for my whole life. Because the reality is past mistakes can be very helpful in teaching us valuable lessons on life. And what we're going to see in chapter 26 is David's past experiences are shaping David. Even last week, which was really so far probably the lowest point of what we've seen of David. Now it's going to get lower once we get into 2 Samuel. But as we see David going through these experiences, God is making him the man after his own heart. God is molding him into the leader that he's going to be because it's through these kind of experiences we find fertile soil for growth and learning. So we're just going to look at four lessons that David has gleaned and is gleaning uh, through these moments in life. If you're taking notes, we're going to begin by looking at, we need to watch out for the wicked. 
I mean, David just, he has some enemies, doesn't he not? I mean, he just has enemy after enemy after enemy, adversity, opposition, constantly. And we're going to see how he responds to uh, these foes. Second lesson we're going to look at is that we need to trust that God can make a way. And this is greatly tied to the previous chapter, where David, if you recall, was about to take matters into his own hand. That this Nabal, who was a worthless, wicked man, he had slighted David. And David got so frustrated, so angry about it, what was David going to do? He was going to kill every man. He took his 400 soldiers, left 200 behind, and he was going to Nabal, and he was going to kill him and every man at his residence. But we're going to see that God finds a way, and he, so we need to trust that God can make a way. Third lesson we're going to look at is we need to aim for the right target. Because David, rather than being vengeful, once again with Saul, he realizes that faithfulness and righteousness is what really matters in our lives. So we're going to see this right target that we need to live uh, and aim towards. And then lastly, we're going to look that we need to rest in God's results. We need to rest in God's results. That we need to get to a point in our life where we strive for faithfulness, we strive for righteousness, and then we kind of take a step back and And I know it sounds very cliche-ish. We let go and let God. We leave the results in his hands. We we are faithful, and we'll see what he does with our faithfulness. So let's get started. Let's pick up at verse 1 as we watch out for the wicked. It says, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul rose, and he went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel, to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. First of all, notice his adversaries. Now, if, if, if you've been here for our series, some of these names and some of these situations are sounding a little familiar. First of all, it's the Ziphites. If you remember chapter 23, they kind of throw David under the bus. You know, David's on the run, and they come to Saul, and they say, Hey, Saul, you know where David is? He's here. You should come down and do whatever your heart's desire. And so, so we see these people once again. I don't know what their problem is with David and why they're so bent on being a brown noser and a kiss up with Saul, but we see it again. So he's got these adversaries. And we're going to see that in David's life. He constantly has enemies. Psalm 119, 157. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. But in the, the context, who's the biggest adversary? Who's the biggest enemy? What is it? Saul. And Saul, and, and Saul is not trending in the right direction. He is becoming more callous, more hard-hearted than he was even previously. One summer, I worked with my stepfather. He's a bricklayer, and, and I helped do construction, and I did like labor, meaning like manual labor stuff, and I didn't wear gloves most of the summer. By the end of the summer, my hands were so calloused, so hard, so rough. They, they, they felt almost like leather over the course of that summer. 
And you see, that is what is going on with Saul's heart. 1 Samuel 15, 23, it says, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. You have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. And it has been a downhill spiral since then. Because if you recall, at the end of chapter 24, he had pleaded, because David had spared Saul's life, they had a conversation, and he asked for David to to spare his family, because it looked like, okay, they're finally done. They're finally done being chased by Saul, and they parted ways, and we're talking two chapters later, he's back at it, because that's what your hard heart gets you. It gets worse. Well, one, do you have realistic expectations of opposition? Do you see the propensity of the human heart to be sinful? I would argue as Christians, I think we don't realize how bad it could be. And we should be very surprised when we don't have as many enemies and as many foes. Like the church should expect to be pushed against by the world, by society, because we're preaching truth and we're bringing the gospel to light and it is offensive to those that are perishing. So notice his adversaries, but also notice his actions. So what does David do? Does David immediately run, like kind of one of those moments that you see in a movie where he runs and gives David, Saul, who he sometimes calls his father, a hug? Is that what happens? No, he finds out he's there and immediately he's like, let's make sure he's there. There's a, there's a caution we see on the part of a David. He ends up going into the camp, but he only goes with one other person and it's very stealth. Even though they had made vows, he knew that Saul was not somebody to be trusted. Over in the Ukraine, the Russian armies have pulled back in certain areas, and some of the areas in the capital region. That's great that the opposing army has pulled out, but the danger now is mines. There's mines around houses, mines where even bodies have left behind. So they are very much in danger. They have to, everywhere they're walking, they have to walk carefully and be checking and looking. And you understand, that is how David was living his life. He was under caution. He realized that he was at war, that Saul had no good intentions. And isn't that what Paul said to the churches at Ephesus? The church at Ephesus? Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the evil, of the devil. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. That as Christians, we need to be wise, we need to be mindful with regards to what we do and and our interactions with the world. Uh, John Piper, I, I remember him once saying, we need to have a wartime mentality. And you live differently, you act differently, you think differently when you're at war as opposed when you're at a time of peace. Or are you on the alert? Are you naive? Do you live like you're in war? Do you trust too easily? And Christians sometimes can be the most naive people. That doesn't mean we don't put ourselves in harm's way. That doesn't mean that, that we don't engage people and have meaningful relationships where they inevitably might hurt you. But we need to be wise. We need to be crafty. We need to be thinking that we, we have a real enemy in this world, friends, that desires nothing less than your demise. So we need to watch out for the wicked. Secondly, we need to trust that God can make a way. Read verse 6 with me. 
Then David said to Himelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother, Abishah, the son of Jeruah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishah said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishah went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishah said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishah, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to, to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his hand and the jar of water, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. So no man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. First of all, look at God's hand in the midst of all this, what he's doing. So David, it seems like these two men that go into the camp have two different agendas, right? David's agenda, as we're going to see, I think it's similar to what we saw in chapter 24. He wants to prove once again that he's innocent, that even though he has the opportunity to kill Saul, he's not going to do it. So that's his kind of agenda, and we're going to see he does that. But Abishah seems to be going in there with a very clear agenda. And what is that? He's going to kill Saul. We're going to end this. We're no longer going to be on the run. Let's just, let's just wrap this up and be done with it. So both of them. And then notice what happens. 1 Samuel 24, verse 4. Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give into your hand an enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. That was in chapter 4, 24. Remember, that was when Saul was in the cave and David could have killed him. And then once again, what, is, what does Abishah say right here? God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Let's, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. I and mean, we sometimes talk about this. Uh, I might not get another chance at this. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a job opportunity. It's a vacation, a house you're going to buy, a, a car you're going to purchase, whatever. We, we sometimes even say this is a once in a lifetime what? Opportunity. So you, just, you need to not pass it by. And like that is what Abish is saying. He's like, we've got him again. We got him in the cave and you chose not to, but we have him right here. Let's do this. And isn't it kind of funny how he says it? He asks him politely if he can kill him. He says, can I, can I please, just one time. You know, he says, like, I'm not even going to do it. Like, it's not going to be that messy. It's going to be one spear. He's dead. Game over. Just, can, can I please? And, and what does David say to him? He's like, no, you, you, you can't touch him. But both of them clearly see that what is happening is God's providence. That God has placed Saul before them, yet again, vulnerable. Well, do you believe in God's providence? In God's circumstances, do you believe and trust in just how God writes the narrative of your life? Do things ever happen in your life that are by luck, by chance, by coincidence? Because I would say no. God is always working out what he's doing. So we not only say look at God's hand, what he says is we need to leave it in God's hand. Verse 10, I would argue, is, is, is probably the, the pivot point the key argument in all of the chapter. Look at verse 10 again with me. David says, As the Lord lives, 
the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. Notice what David says here. He says, here are three possible options that I can kind of come up with off the top of my head. Oh, God is going to deal with Saul and not deal with him through me. Number one, it says the Lord's going to kill him. When is in the near future did he recently experience that reality? Who was the person? Last chapter, Nabal, do you remember? David was going to go down and kill him. Abigail comes, Nabal's wife, interrupts it, intervenes on their behalf. He realizes that God is restraining him from doing evil by killing this worthless man. And what ends up happening after that is what does God do? God strikes Nabal dead. So David looks at the situation and says, you know what? God can strike him dead. Second option is he's going to die of natural death, natural cause. He's getting old. We don't know what he looks like. Maybe he's in bad shape. He doesn't work out. He's not eating healthy, whatever the case is. He'll just die of natural death. And then a third option, he's like, you know what? Maybe in battle, he'll be in battle and he'll be killed in the midst of all that. But either way, what he says is that God will figure it out, right? That God will take care of it, that I don't have to do it. Isaiah 43, 16, it says, Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Isaiah 55, 8, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And he's learned this from his experience with Nabal, is that God can make a way. Did you hear that? God can make a way. God is not dependent. He's not contingent on you. He can do things. He's, he's very creative. When we lived in Mississippi for three years during seminary, loved the eating down there. It was horrible for me, but we just, I, my wife's doing children's church, but if she was in here, she would be amening. Like, it was, it was such good. But one of the things I learned is most of the time with meat, there was one way you're supposed to cook it, and that was fry it. Like, chicken, like, chicken was made to be fried. But is chicken, is the only way you can cook a chicken frying it? No, I went online, like, there's like, there's a million ways it seems. You can broil it, you can grill it, you can rotisserie, you can braise it. I don't even know half the things. It's just, there's so many ways. Friends, there are so many ways that God can deal with the situations in your life right now. You understand that? I mean, I want everybody to think of a current matter that you're dealing with. Some kind of a problem. Maybe it isn't risen to crisis level, but it's an issue that you're really trying to work through. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's with your children. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's finances. Whatever it is. And I think what we do, you and I, we're really good at this. We narrow it down and we see maybe one, two, possibly three solutions, and that's it. Well, this is either what's going to happen. We're going to get this, we're going to get this, we're going to get this. And, and God laughs at that. Because like, you see three ways, I see 3,000 ways. You have no idea what I am capable of, how I can step in. I can do stuff you would have never even daydreamed, never in your wildest dreams had done. 
But what you need to do, and what David is doing in here is what? He's trusting that God is faithful, God is just, and God will make a way. But what situation are you going through right now? Are there ways that you haven't even imagined that God could work his will through in that moment? Isn't it exciting to think of that? Because I think it's so discouraging. You feel so defeated when you're like, either it's going to be point A or point B, and point A is what I want, and I'm thinking point B is probably point number is the way that's going to transpire, and I'm very disappointed when you don't realize that God's got a C or a D or an E or an F out there, that he's going to come in out of nowhere. I remember when we bought our house, there was A, and we, we made our offer. I wanted this house so bad. And I even pleaded with the lady who was selling it after she rejected her offer over somebody else. I even called her, and we had a conversation, and I kind of just really tried to manipulate God's will my way. And I got to know. And I was so disappointed and so discouraged and so defeated. And it's right by my in-laws. So every time I go to my in-laws, I drive by that house. And every time I drive by that house, I praise the Lord that we did not get that house. Because our, not because it's by my in-laws. So let me, let me clarify that one. But because the house that we end up with just is so much better for our family in so many ways. And God knew that. In the moment, I saw one or two ways. And God's like, no, I have other ways. And he's got the same for you. So we need to watch out for the wicked. We need to trust that God can make a way. Third lesson we see from here is we need to aim for the right target. Read verse 13 with me. It says, Then David went over to the other side, and he stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army, to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? And Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Then why then have you not kept watch over your Lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you should deserve to die. Because you have not kept watch over your Lord. The Lord's anointed and now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this not your voice, my son, David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord. O king, and he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should not have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes. This day, behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered him, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Do you see the right way here that David is demonstrating? So once again, like in chapter 24, David defends himself. As if he's before a judge, as if he's before a jury, he gives a defense that, hey, I'm innocent. 
Once again, if I was out to kill you, Saul, you would be dead. And I didn't. That speaks volumes of my agenda. It speaks volumes of, of, of where my heart is. And then notice he calls out Abner. Abner's going to be an interesting character through the rest of 1 Samuel and into uh, 2 Samuel uh, and, and ends up uh, being uh, killed at the hands of the one gentleman's brother, so Abish's brother later. But we're, we're going to see, he calls him out. Why? Because he's the commander and he did not protect Saul. For Samuel 24, 11, there's no wrong or treason in my hand. I have not sinned against you, though you haunt my life to take it. And then notice he even gives the possibility. He's like, hey, if I've done something wrong, may the Lord accept an offering from me. So he's even given the possibility, maybe it's my fault. But if it's not my fault and people are misleading you and guiding you wrong, let them be cursed. And then once again, what does he play up? He calls himself a flea, that I'm a nobody, I'm innocent, I'm no threat to you. Why are you chasing me? But then notice in verse 23, very key verse as well in the passage. He says, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. It's the target. So right now we're in a gym, right? So we look, you can look over there, you can look there, whatever you're closest to. Right behind me, we got basketball hoops. If you're playing basketball, what is the target? The hoop. So you want to get the ball into the hoop. So if you're shooting, you're, you're aiming in that direction, you can even use the backboard. You're, you, it's a clear target. Well, we see David, when he's looking at his life, when he's considering how we live, what is the target he says in verse 23? What is our target? It's what? It's righteousness. It's faithfulness. That is the target. Hosea 10, 12 says, Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your hollow ground. For it is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Well, what's your target in your life? What are you aiming for? How often are you aiming for righteousness? Faithfulness in life. But not only is it the right way, it's the rewarded way. Do you notice this? Did you notice that? It's the rewarded way. What does he say? The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness. Now, we we need to make a distinction. The Lord does not reward us in the sense of our our place in heaven. You and I are not going to get into heaven based on that we were righteous, that we were faithful, that we did good stuff. Therefore, we've earned that. No, it's not that. But there is a sense when you and I do the right thing, when we honor the Lord, when we're faithful, that God is pleased with that and he blesses it. Galatians 6, 9, he says, let none of us grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. You understand? He does not reward wickedness he won't justify the wrong way. Because isn't that what David could do in this moment? What could he do? What could he have argued? Saul won't leave me alone. I've got to get rid of this guy. I have every right to kill this guy, doesn't he? Doesn't it feel that way? And yet he's like, I'm not going to do that. I will not put my hand against the wicked. I, I won't do that. God rewards holiness. He celebrates faithfulness. He's going to do the right thing. Well, have you ever been caught in that situation? Have you been caught in that moment where you're that, 
you have that choice. Do I, do I honor the Lord or do I dishonor him? And you're, you're, you're trying to make that decision. Do you realize what you need to strive for is what? Honor Christ. Even if it's causes suffering to you. Even if you don't get what you want, the end of the day, our target and our goal is faithfulness. So we watch out for the wicked. We trust that God can make a way. We aim for the right target. Last thing we want to do, lesson in life, rest in God's results. Notice verse 24 with me. He says, behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, blessed be you, my son, David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. First, notice, notice what David stresses here, that he is precious to God. And he gives the example. He's like, the, the fact that I didn't kill you made you precious. Because if you were valuable, I'm not going to lay a hand. If you, were in, if you weren't valuable, I could have killed you. I was reading about precious stones. Uh, they're minerals which combine the highest degree of beauty, hardness, durability, and rarity. They include diamonds, rubies, sapphire, and emeralds. And the more precious they are, the more what? Valuable they are. Have you ever thought about that, though, that God views you and I like precious stones? That we're precious in his sight, that we have value. Isaiah 43, 4, listen. He says, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. Psalm 116, 15, you're precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, that you have value and worth to, God, to the Lord. You matter. Do you think about that? Do you realize that? That you matter to God, that he looks at you with value and worth like somebody who's got precious diamonds and rubies and sapphires and emeralds. But not only are you precious to God, you are protected by God. And notice what he says. My life may be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Remember, he is striving for righteousness and faithfulness. He's leaving the results in God's hand. Second Peter 2.9, the Lord knows how to rescue the men the godly from trials. He doesn't deny the tribulations, but Yahweh's gonna deliver him. Psalm 18, verse two, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Well, who is your deliverer, friends? Is it fellow people? Is it your resources? Is it your position in life? Is it your, like you fill in the blank. Where is your deliverer? Or is it God? Is he your hope in life and death? Is he the one that you rest in? Because at the end of the day, isn't that what we need to be at? We need to be at a point that no matter what, whether it's your business dealings, your children that you're raising up and you're having problems with, your marriage, whatever it is, your finances, you fill it in. We need to get to a point where we strive for faithfulness, strive for righteousness, 
and we say, God, you've got this. I trust you. And know that there's a whole sort of ways that he will play this self out. I don't remember where I heard this sermon illustration. It was one of those ones that kind of stuck in my heart and my mind for 20, 30 years. But it was in the days before planes, okay? So if you were coming from Europe to the United States, how did you travel? Really pretty much one option, right? Big vessels. Well, in the days of that, there was a captain from Liverpool. He was commanding a ship over from Liverpool to New York. And on this particular voyage, he had a pretty large crew. Uh, He was carrying lots of people. He also had his family there. Well, right there in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, huge storm arose one night, and it got dicey. Like, even his crew was scared. People that are, are, are sailors, and they're used to it, and they're scared to death. And the people who are traveling, they're like worried they're going to die. And so everybody, it's just frantic. The, the ship is going back and forth and waves and it's loud and, and all that stuff. And in the midst of it, the captain's eight-year-old daughter wakes up, frightened as can be. You got people panicking, the sailors panicking, everybody. And, he, and she wakes up and she's like, what's happening? And there was a storm and we're in the midst of a storm and it's really bad. And she asked this question. Where is my father? And they said, your father's on deck. And she looks at them and she walks back into her room, her cabin. She shuts her door. She goes back onto her bed, puts her head on her pillow and goes to sleep. Can you imagine that? Everybody else is freaking out. The sailor's like, we're going to die. And the little girl hears that her dad is at the deck. Her dad has the hands on the wheel, and she can go back to sleep in the midst of the storm. Doesn't that sound like David, friends? That he's got enemy after enemy. Saul is relentless. He wants to kill him. But David knew that his father was on the deck, that his father had the hand of the wheel, and he didn't need to worry. I mean, what a valuable lesson in life for you and I to learn and to glean that whatever trial or storm that comes our way, God is got it under control. We need not panic. We need not get worry. We don't have to be fearful. We can rest in him. Because our God is on deck. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now and we, we thank you and we praise you that you are the one that we can trust in that you are the one that uh, is at work. And whatever's going on, I just want to lift up, whatever situation that is currently being experienced by those in attendance today or watching at home, that God, you would remind them that you're on deck, that your hand's on the wheel, that you've got this, that you're in control. And I just pray that in the midst of this, you would be developing faith, confidence, trust in you. I also pray that you would be really uh, bringing your word to bear in their lives, that they would be striving for righteousness and faithfulness in all that they do, knowing that you are the God that can and will make a way. We pray even now as we conclude our service with a song uh, that, God, we would just not go through the motions uh, of singing, but, Lord, that we would sing out of hearts 
filled with gratitude for what you have done. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.